What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 33 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is an honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we are all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. And what I love about leadership, it really doesn't matter the space and place. Nothing can keep you from being that leader but you and me. And sometimes we just need that encouragement. Sometimes we just need that encouragement that we can be that person that we've always wanted to be, and we learn that by seeing others that are out there doing it. Today's guest may be one of the guys that you don't know his name, but you certainly know his product. He spent over 40 years in the food service industry, working all over literally the world, creating some of the sandwiches we'll talk about in the podcast that you've heard of and possibly even like I have eaten many times. His name is Andy Ravella. He is fascinating. Met him through a great mutual friend named Ira Blumenthal, who you'll meet in a later podcast. But Andy is one of the most eclectic, interesting people I have ever sat down with. And you never dream that a guy that has been in an industry that may not be an industry that I do every day, but in that space, in that place, he became the man that he was created to be in an unbelievable story. So I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to take some good notes and I want you to listen in to my time with Andy Ravella. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today on Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Well, I am so excited to be here and share this time with you because I've listened to some of the other ones, and they really, really are very important that people understand the role God can play in our lives, both our personal lives and our business lives. I think in today's times, some may be a little bit reluctant in the business environment uh, to talk about God and, and how he helps us, but I would say we shouldn't. We should talk a lot about God and let other folks know how he's made impacts on our lives. That's awesome. Well, you know, it's funny. I was I was reading up on your career. We've got a great mutual. We've got a great mutual friend named Ira who's gotten us connected. You've been in the food service industry for fifty plus years. What captured you about this world? Well, you know, it's interesting. I I, I wondered about that my whole life uh, because I thought, well, what if I started I, my career in something else? Would I've been uh, as successful in that industry. But what started me, and, and this is an incredible story, because it goes back many years, and it may be hard for some people to understand, but just to set the, the fr time frame a little bit, minimum wage was 60 cents an hour. Wow. So that'll give you an idea, right? <laughs> so, uh, I came home from school one day, and uh, we were an Italian family, my mother and father, and there was six of us, and we lived in a two-bedroom apartment in New York City. 
Uh, that's right, two-bedroom apartment, wow. six children, two parents. And it's an Italian family. And so, you know, the um, older son is the heir apparent and the most important person in the group. And I came home and my dad told me that I needed to go to work and get a job so I can bring the money home so my brother could go to medical school. Now, this is the first interaction with God I had that he let me understand quickly. Now, wait a minute. I go to work, bring the money home, and he's the doctor. (laughs) When I told my dad that I didn't think that that was a good deal for me, uh, he said, well, then, you know, you're going to have to leave because we can't afford to feed you. I mean, really, my dad couldn't read or write. And there's not very many opportunities for someone who couldn't read or write. And so what's a 12-year-old to do with that information? Well, I moved out. (laughs) And what I did is I did, I was very, very blessed so early on. I had some really great friends that lived right down the street. uh, And they took me in. They said, okay. Well, it was about a week and a half into that that I decided, well, I've got to get some money. And I went with Louie, who was my best friend, and uh, he took me to this place called the Chuck Wagon. And I'll never forget, uh, well, he seemed very, very tall to me, but probably six foot. And again, I was only 12. So, and I asked him for a job. And he told me that, you know, because I was underage, I had to be 14 at that time. Uh, But he said, but because I was underage, he wouldn't pay me any money the first 30 days, but I could eat. Wow. And uh, I got tremendous <laughs> deal out of that. <laughs> I tell you, uh, uh, Chuck Wagon was the forerunner to McDonald's, by the way. We had, really? Uh, yes. We had 15 cent hamburgers, 12 cent French fries. Coca-Cola was 10 cents. Uh, but we flame broiled like Burger King. We didn't griddle. Uh, but anyway, so I started work. And from the very first second that he threw an apron at me and he said, get on that fry station. I went over there and I, a feeling came over me of such contentment. I immediately, now think about this. I'm 12 years old, never been in a kitchen in my life. I knew how to cook the French fries. I knew how to cook the fried shrimp. I knew how to cook the fried chicken. And I had no training, no experience. Within an hour, I was already figuring out a better, a faster way to open the French fry bags because we didn't have the, the scoop they had right, today. Right, right, yeah. And so I can tell you this, from the very first basket of fries I ever dropped, I was in love. I found home. And I'll never forget, it was about, uh, well, by the way, after the month, he did live up to his word. He paid me 50 cents an hour. Wow. Uh, well, remember, minimum wage was 60, so it wasn't too bad. Uh But I remember when I got my first, because back then you didn't actually get a paycheck. They put cash in an envelope. And I got my first paycheck, was a pay envelope, was $14. And, of course, I must have counted that $14 a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. But I remember saying, wow, you get paid to do this. And there was a fellow in there. His name was Donnie. And he said to me, oh, one day you're going to regret that. And I I said, well, I don't know, but I don't today. Well, I can tell you, 53 years later in this business, I feel the exact same way. Oh, they pay you to do this. So I've I've always known from that very instant that um, God was on my side or looking out for me, so to speak, because 
How does that happen? I mean, as I said, what if I went into a tire store? What if I went into a a battery store or some other store and just did something to survive? Instead, I get guided to go to a place that gave me 53 years of happiness in my work. Now, there's a lot of things that that people are saying coincidental. I don't believe that was coincidental at all. No, not at all. And then to go from there, a 12-year-old boy who starts really out of necessity, you had to do it. There really wasn't an option, but you ended up in the right place at the right time. And then you end up going and getting a culinary education in London. How in the world did you go from starting on the fryer to (laughs) culinary education in London? How did that transpire? Well, actually, it was a, a... um, not a straight road, uh, but by the time I was 14, uh, which you have to think is 1966 at the time, by the time I was 14, I was the night manager, and I was making $200 a week, and my dad was making 80 And so then I went on to uh, get some other food service jobs so I could learn more because I knew I needed to learn more. I went to a catering hall. I, went, I worked there during the days as a prep cook, learning how to really cook. And then I did uh, a deli. I loaded milk trucks. There was one summer I actually had three jobs. Wow. And so what happened, though, uh, one of the uh, negative things, again, is I dropped out of high school because um, I I was working. I mean, what was school going to do for me? I was already making more money than my dad. And, you know, it just was I was not in a circle of people who would uh, push you to go to college or to even finish high school. I uh, was around a circle of people who would, you know, a lot of blue collar hard workers. So you kind of, you know, you that's your environment. You kind of follow in those footsteps. But one of the jobs I had was with um, a kosher caterer in Brooklyn. And we would actually do truck catering into all the hotels. So if you wanted to have a truly kosher event, the hotels had to bring in a kosher caterer. And, you know, we had to wheel in the chairs, the tables, the silverware. Wow. Everything. And then cook the food. And, you know, when we had our own traveling mishkia in New York. You have rabbis, but they also have mishkias. And these are the guys that take care of just blessing foods and the, and the establishments. And while I was doing that, there was a gentleman who was touring from London. And at the time, uh, it's, it was an invitation only. And uh, he saw me, you know, because I was young. I was, but I was, I was, again, you know, God led me down a path. I could cook things that no one's ever showed me how to cook. Unbelievable. And, and so he saw me and he saw that how hard I worked and, and my passion. And he started asking me questions about, you know, where did I learn and everything. When I got done with my story. He couldn't believe it. He said, well, I have, uh, I'm a sponsor and I can get you to come to culinary school in London. And you, uh, it'll help you with your career. And so, you know, of course, he invited me to pay. <laughs> it wasn't a sponsorship where no money. Yeah. But I, I actually, I took him up on it. And uh, again, it, what it did was polish me off and mm. give me some technical training. Um, although I would have to tell you that the food service industry is the one industry that I know of for sure where education is not the critical part to your success. You have to have your own inner heart and soul to uh, care about what you're doing. You know, you're feeding people. You know, the most personal choice people make every day 
is the food they eat. That's and right. when, they choose, when they choose you to actually cook that food for them, that's a pretty high honor because they're saying, I want you to make my meal. It doesn't matter where you go. Even if it's McDonald's, somebody back there is cooking your food. And mm -hmm. you hope that they have as much uh, passion for doing that to make sure you get something that you're paying for and enjoy that you would have yourself. Did you find that going to London opened up doors for you when you got back that you probably couldn't have opened other ways? Just yeah. getting that more formal that more formal training, was that good for you? Well, it was good for me in lots of different things. Of course, it, you know, having that got me to travel the world a little bit and see so much other things. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you now, 53 years later, the number one way to learn things is to travel. You, mm -hmm. When you learn it and see it firsthand, uh, how people live and what they eat, things like that. Uh, it's the best way to learn. I mean, mm. I learned how to make great crab cakes because I spent time in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, you, as you travel, even around this country, there are certain things that uh, are you, you really want to, if you want to learn Cajun food, you go to New Orleans. You go down mm. to where that's where they really make it well. Uh, and then you, that's how you, you learn the best from other folks. But I think the thing about that was it, it helped in certain offices, certain meetings, there is an element of uh, folks that will only hire people who have some sort of degree. Yeah. And it's a shame because uh, the paper um, is not really the thing that works. I, I personally experienced that at Harris. When I went to work at Harris, their uh, CEO or chairman at the time uh, was Mike Rose, and they were having all kinds of problems uh, because all their casinos were run independently. And their food and beverage, of course, is the, one of the big attractions to a casino today. And they were struggling with food and beverage. And they did a search with Harvard University to find a person who could take over food and beverage nationwide for them. Now, they've never had anyone in their company at that 60-year history who at the corporate office had responsibilities for the field. And it was down to two candidates, me and myself and one other. And uh, Mike Rose did not want to hire me because I didn't go to some Ivy League college. Mm. But Bill Satry said, you know, no, this is the guy we want. We want a guy that can get in there, be a street fighter, it could lead these folks, and but not back down. And so I got the job, and, and it was a very good job. And, and they also, they give out a, a corporate excellence award, and nobody – receives that award in Harris at that time, unless they were there 15 to 20 years. Wow. I got it in year two. Unbelievable. And is a lot of that, of the grit that you learned, the hustle that you learned as a 12 year old, that you just had to make this thing work. Did a lot of that on top of the great skills that you had, was that part of what sort of propelled you through the industry? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Every day I woke up, uh, my wife is amazed even now that every day I jump out of bed with the uh, idea that, okay, I've got to get started, got to get going, mm -hmm. got to get something done today. Regardless of all the past success, if you're going to continue, you have to also continue to contribute. That's right. That part doesn't go away. That's good. You know, so I, I see you graduate, you become a chef of a Hilton in New York City and a banquet chef, I believe, and yes, then sir. quickly move quickly move to where you were over five Hilton hotels in Maryland and Georgia. So what was the difference between just being a chef in one 
a banquet chef in one to now managing five different ones. What began to grow in you during that time? So it was more than just making a meal. Now you're overseeing lots of people. What began to grow in you during that time? Well, it was the, I didn't know it when I was doing it. It just won. I didn't realize what it was that I was doing, but I had probably in the Hilton system at that time, one of the best food courses in the country. They even sent a, uh, a regional senior vice president to see what I was doing. And when he came in and he saw all the things, the passion I had, you know, I was cutting, butchering my own meat, baking cake instead of buying it, all kinds of things. And so he, uh, you know, and they, they even wrote some stories about one the, the CEO of the time said, the chef down there must have been born with a spatula in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> what I learned was, was the business side mm. of, of food and beverage. You know, there's the two sides to our business. There's the culinary side. That's making things taste delicious and look great. But there's the science side. And science involves so much more. You have to make money. And there's a clear difference between cooking for fun and cooking for profits. That's where, you know, if I had to encourage youngsters is to learn really that it's a business too. It, mm. Don't put heavy weight on either one, but equal weight on both of them. That's good. How did you begin to grow in that? How did, I mean, this is all sort of new to you. Was it as intuitive as the, the, the cooking piece? Did that side come pretty intuitive as well? It did. It really did. And so it came by sitting in meetings and listening to my fellow. I was always in my earlier days in those kinds of meetings. I was very quiet because I lacked the confidence of not having gone to school. Uh, and so I was sure they all knew more than I did. So I, I, I listened a lot and, and I would keep seeing and hearing, but they really didn't know that much more. As a matter of fact, I had more real life experience because I was actually back there working with the folks. <laughs> and, you know, and um, you know, so there's a lot you can learn in a book, but there's a lot more you right. can learn really when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Well, and I think good. I would say that Ira and I had similar lives and i think that's maybe one of the reasons why we're such good friends that's so good and so you stay in that world and now you begin to work with multiple hotels as you looked out and you were looking for someone to be a chef in one of those hiltons that you worked in in, in maryland or, or georgia what were things that make a great chef what are the traits of somebody that you go they get it. They are going to be great. What were those traits that began to stand out? Well, the first thing you look for, of course, is excitement and passion. Mm -hmm. That when they actually put the food up, they're very, very proud. Uh, and they don't watch the clock. Hours doesn't make it good. They make it good. And so that when you look for someone, you, you just listen to how they describe what's important to them, especially the importance to the passion for creating a great experience for the person paying for that meal. And quite frankly, what I look for is true leadership. Can you help other people come along? Because nobody does it by themselves. Nobody. That's right. How important is the people skill part of it? You know, you're, you're great with food. You're great in the business. How important is that people, that people trait working with teammates, working with customers? Is that something that's innate for most people or something they can learn? You think? Uh, well, I would tell you that faith plays a huge role in that mm. uh, because early on um, I was more of a get it done guy at any cost. And I don't think I was as good a person as I could have been in the early stages. 
But over time, as you start to deal with more and more people and you really listen to their lives and you start to think about how blessed your life is, you start to realize that, you know what? There's more to this than just getting the job done. There's a life to be lived. And I could tell you, it was probably in my early 20s that I understood somebody was looking after me. Mm. I had some guidance. Now, remember, I left home. Didn't have parental guidance. And so where did that direction come from? How did I know where to go and what to do and, and just handle the situations that came up? So I, I, if you were able to take and hear my whole life story, and, and if someone had a doubt if there was a God, I think I'm living proof there is one. Mm. Because when you, you cannot have the success that I've had by accident and or coincidence. Mm. Uh, it was a hardworking road. But I, can, I remember my whole life, well, at least from the 20s, I would be able to talk about God with my fellow employees at work. And uh, it would be the time that we would have peace. We, you know, with all the hard work around us, it, we, it seemed it added joy to our day. And, and so many people wanted to talk about it. It just wasn't something that people, you know, that was maybe accepted. But once you, as a leader, let them know that it is and it's okay, then you get to see the miracles in everyone's lives. And you get to start saying, you know what? It's not just me. Look at this. And But it was that that inner feeling that I had that I know uh, God was looking out for me. That's good. And you were in your 20s when that journey started? Yes, it did. I was in my 20s and I started, uh, you know, really, truly. Um, actually, that's when I started reading the Bible with uh, interest to how learn. That? And how did you keep growing in that? How did that how did that piece of your life grow as you grew? Did you get involved in a church where you were at, or did you meet a good friend that really helped you in that? Well, early on, I didn't. I was one of those folks that didn't think you needed a broker to have a relationship with God. Right. I didn't, I didn't understand the whole church community. Sure. I understood my relationship, my my one on one with God, and being able to talk and pray to Him directly. And I was always a little stubborn, saying, "I don't need someone else to talk to God for me. I can do it myself." You know, much later in life, and quite frankly, it was when my older daughter was 16, she told me, Dad, it's time for you to come home. And what she meant was go to church. Wow. And I, I did. And I, I, I did go to church early on, but not as regularly, not as committed until she, when I looked at her and I had my daughter, who I love my children, uh, made me realize it was time. And so I started going to church at that point and uh, really, truly, within six months, I started teaching Sunday school. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, with high school students, because I had a gift uh, with young kids. Uh, they were inspired by my story and would listen and knew that I was not being judgmental about them and that I was just trying to share life stories with them and showed them how my life was so guided and, you know, to be out in the world, I mean, living in New York, I was 14, 15 years old. And with all the other issues in the world, how is it that I was so protected? Never mm. once in trouble, never, ever. I mean, never. it's just, how does that happen? And it happens through strong faith. And so I, they like hearing from someone who is not trying to get them to do something. That's right. Uh, other than open their minds. 
That's right. And so it, it was tremendous. And with that came um, another calling, and we had a new pastor. And he came to our church, and he talked about um, building a home for people uh, in Mission, Texas. And so I did it. He asked me if I would help. He knew I was in the food business, and he said, you know, Andy, we need somebody to cook the food and do all that. Would you be willing to do that? And I thought, well, okay, I'll, that sounds like I, I could do that. So I, I built a first home 12 years ago. And at the end of that first week, when you give keys to a, someone, a family who, had, who has absolutely nothing, mm. and you give them a home, it's 900 square feet, but it's a home, roof, light. It, a feeling came over me, a sense that, again, I realized this is what he wants me to do. And now, next Jan, in January, we'll be doing our 12th or 13th home. <laughs> and we actually started something called Home in a Week, and we're a 501c3. And we are now have, from one church, six churches involved. Wow. And, and we get 50 to 60 volunteers who we who come down and spend a week and we show up and it's it's just dirt a week later they have a complete home and the fulfillment that the kids were getting so i was able to take these kids high schoolers and and college kids with us and the you could tell the first day they showed up they're still talking about their ipads and their their phones and all their little gadgets by the end of the week none of them Mm. have those phones in their hands. How about and that? It's a tremendous, and you could, you know, so they start thinking, oh, okay, it's going to be fun. And they work hard all week. Uh, and they don't get very much rest because, you know, to do, build that whole house. But at the end of the week, they too have seen what giving truly means, how wonderful you feel by giving. Uh, and it's, again, it's, I, I feel very strongly that God said, okay, now it's your turn to do this. And uh, I, I just, it's unbelievable the feeling you get with that. And, and I wonder how he takes your story back to being one of six in a tiny apartment in New York City and the, the efforts that your parents, I'm sure, were trying to make and they just couldn't. Do you feel like that plays a lot into that fire in your belly to help those folks? Yes, I, it does. I mean, for years, uh, uh, my biggest fear was being poor. I didn't mm. want to be poor again. And I remember the exact conversation I had with God about that. I was in the sixth grade. And I remember that my, my, all of our clothes came from Goodwill. Our shoes came from Goodwill. A new pair of shoes for us was shoes from somebody else. Mm. But, you know, I don't look back at that and think it was terrible. It no. was just and, um, But I remember the soles were coming off my shoes one day. And my mom gave me some rubber bands to hold them. And later in recess that day, we, we were playing a game of, you know, you, and it was questions and answers, a bunch of us boys and girls together. But they had to check to make sure you didn't have your fingers crossed behind your back, because if you crossed your fingers, you could say something that wasn't exactly accurate. Well, this one girl decided she would also check my toes. So she reached down to touch my shoes. Now, of course, I didn't know that's what she was doing. I thought she was observing the rubber bands holding my soles. And I remember walking back home that day uh, from school and talking to God out loud 
I mean, if somebody on the sideline would have seen me, they would have said, there goes a nut. But I remember talking to him and saying, God, help, please help me. I don't want to be poor the rest mm. of my life. Please help me understand. And so one of the things everybody has to remember is it's in his time. That's right. Not our, but he does deliver. He does look for you and he guides you through all these things. I just look back at all the success and I've been so blessed with the different opportunities that I've had. And I ask, why me? I mean, you know, to be able to become one of the owners of Steak and Ale and Bennigan's 383 restaurants, when so many people before me worked hard to build that company, why did I, why was I in a position at that time to become one of the owners? Mm. Uh, and so, those, again, those things don't happen by accident. A lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, and you keep, you truly keep the faith and understand it. Don't worry. He may not answer your prayer today as you think, but he's working on it. You know, it's so interesting to move, and I'm glad you brought that up because you moved from the hotel world, and then you got into the the chain restaurant world with Steak and Ale and Bennigan's. And by the way, I hear, I think Ira told me that the Monte Cristo was one of your specialties. Is that correct? That's correct. I actually served it the first time in 1974 in Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> I was the first one to do a fried Monte Cristo. Of course, the Monte Cristo was always grilled on a griddle in, with egg, and I decided to just put it in batter and deep fry it. And it was such a huge hit. Uh, and I, when I took over Bennigan's, I introduced it there, and it was our number one selling item on the menu. My wife's favorite sandwich in the world is a Monte Cristo. When Ira told me that, I was like, she could taste a Monte Cristo if we drove within 10 miles of a Bennigan's because there was, there was nothing like it. So you moved from being in a hotel to the chain restaurant world. What changed about leadership? What changed about how you had to work day to day when you have 383 restaurants? What was that process like? Well, um, you know, I didn't go directly that way. I had some independent restaurants first, but um, I realized that I had never worked for, um, you know, a, a big restaurant. I've always been independence, catering, all kinds of things like that. And I wanted to, again, get more experience. And so 1984, I joined them as a manager in training. March of 1984, a manager in training. And I remember them telling me, that, uh, oh, it'll be two or three years before you get to be a GM. You know, mm. you just have to, you know, stick with it. Well, in June, I went to the manager training conference, which was 10-day conference where they bring all these trainees from, of course, the country. And I want to say there was 40-somewhat people in the class. And at the end of the week, you know, you take tests every day. I graduated first. Wow. And of course, I, please remember, everyone in that room had gone to college. I was the only non-college person in that room. Wow. And by September, now remember, I started in March. They told me two or three years. By September, I was the regional manager of the state of California. And I took four restaurants that were losing money. I turned them around to make $1.1 million in one year. And for that, they said, you need to do this at all of Bennigan's. And I got promoted to go to take over all of Bennigan's. Now, just so you know, when I started as a manager in training, I had no idea there was even that opportunity. Wow. And to do what I did, I mean, so again, when you think about it, what's the, what are the odds? Well, when you think about it in human terms, the odds are astronomical. But when you think about it in God's terms, 
they're not so high. That's good. The fact that he, I could do that and go into a, a company, it was owned by Pillsbury at the time, by the way, which means it was a very big corporate yep. type environment. And many, many pre- people predicted because of my wild style, meaning you know I was an operations guy, that I would never be able to fit in the boardrooms. Well, I guess in Pillsbury's long history, they have now given out a total of four Creative Excellence Awards. And I am proud to say I am one of those four. So for those that said I wouldn't make it in a corporate boardroom, I think they missed them off. They didn't realize who was on my side. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, and just to have that ability to take, you know, what you thought you found your love of cooking and right at 12, and then you learned to lead, and then you learn in a hotel environment. Now you're in a a retail environment. Was it pretty instinctive when you got into the Bennigan's atmosphere and you took those stores that were failing and you began to turn them? As you look back at that, what was the what was the the move or two that you made early on in those first few stores that you had that you said really turned the ship and eventually caused that quick promotion? Well, see, I think what happens in most companies, people try to make decisions sitting at a desk with a computer and a lot of data. The difference for me was I was in the stores. Mm. I was told, I saw the guest. I saw I was with the employees. I could see what sold. I could see the guest's facial expression when a plate was put down. And Bennigan's was missing uh, that fresh food approach. They were missing uh, a food focus because remember back then they were built as a bar that served snacks. And I converted it from, to a restaurant that served cocktails. And it was a complete change in the total product mix. In other words, we sold so much more food. And what happens is people are more loyal. As you can point out your wife with the Monte Cristo, they were more loyal to the Monte Cristo than they were to a two for one happy hour that you could get any place. And so that was one of the things that I didn't know I was teaching them um, because I didn't know I was doing it myself at the time. But there's an example. So it was that being in there and having the passion to kind of get it right, make the guest happy, uh, that led me to to some great decisions on how to do things, bake fresh bread in-house, make all our own sauces and soups and dressings. And this is in a place where where they all said – you know, that can't be done, Andy. We don't, we can't do those kinds of things. Well, I proved we could, and not in one store, in four stores. And to turn it around from losing money to making 1.1 million in 12 months was a pretty big thing. That's a very big thing. And I know you you eventually left that partnership and got out and went on another adventure. As you look back at Steak and Ale and Bennigan's, you don't you don't see them anymore. What, no, hap- what happened? What it, it, just as a as an outside of outside observer, because I know in Atlanta. Steak and Ale and Bennigan's were everywhere. What, yes, what happened and caused the demise? Well, you know, this is a great, that question is so fantastic because I want people to hear this. When we were running Steak and Ale business, we didn't have any franchises. We actually owned and operated all the restaurants. When, we, when Pillsbury got bought by Grand Met, which was an English company uh, that also manufactured liquor, In America, there's something called the Tide House Laws. You cannot manufacture liquor and dispense it by the glass at the same time. So they had to divest themselves of steak and oil and vinegars. Well, we as the management team put together our our, our group and we went and we got some money from Citibank to do a leveraged buyout. Well, at the last minute, 
a gentleman by uh, the name of John Kluge came in and he said, listen, guys, I can really help you and gave us this whole story. And, you know, we were just young. You know, I, I was barely, I think, 40 at the time. And um, so we said, oh, great. We got this. I mean, he had Metro Media, you know, Orion Pictures, all these other wonderful businesses or so we thought. Um, and we said, wow, this is a great way. How blessed are we that we get this guy? Well, he let us alone for about two and a, two and a half years, so to speak. And then he came down to us and he wanted to merge our company with his Ponderosa and Bonanza business. Now, they were losing money, quite a bit of money. And what he really wanted was our cash flow, our profits uh, to help bolster his, his company. Now, this is a billionaire, by the way, right? So he, when we said no, that wasn't a good deal for our people and our 35,000 employees, um, he got very angry and he decided to buy us out and throw us out. And that's exactly wow. what he did. And you talk about a, a mixed feeling. You know, on one hand, you have this nice big check, right? Which offers you peace and comfort financially. But on the other hand, you're unfulfilled. The mission that I was on and trying to do all these things. But, you know, once again... God was at work and I didn't know it then. What happened was I was so obsessed with my work. I remember coming home one night and my wife saying to me, Andy, do you know how many Saturday nights in the last six months you've been home in this house? And I was so foolish. Well, I don't know who's counting, 10, 15? And the answer was zero. Wow. So at that moment of devastation, little did I know God was saving my life. Mm. Had I stayed on that path, I don't know, maybe I would have lost my wife. Maybe my children wouldn't have been born. And, but I didn't know that at the time. I clearly looked. And, and the proof is he sent me on a roundabout journey. And that's when I created the Rainforest Cafe. Wow. Now, had that incident not happened, that tragedy, so I thought, in my life, what would have happened? Here, I got to get to do the most incredible concept. We changed, we created the word entertainment with the rainforest. Only restaurant in every Disney park in the world. And to have created the food and been an investor in that early on. So he, once he bought us out and threw us out, he franchised them all. He took, because, you know, we owned a lot of real estate in stake, and that was a very... 30-year. Oh, yeah. And so he franchised them all. After he got all the money and there were no corporate stores, he bankrupted them. He literally... Now, remember, this is a billionaire that put 35,000 people out of work to line his pockets. And he was already a billionaire. And so you, you just... it was That was it. It was the downfall to, to Bennigan's and it went away. In 1992... We made $92 million EBITDA on $700 million in revenue. We were the most profitable, casual-themed restaurant company in America. It took him 16 years to go from that to bankruptcy mm -hmm. and all that pain. But meanwhile, I went on to do the Rainforest Cafe and to run Harriers Worldwide and to do the – so imagine if those things didn't happen. That's right. That's right. And so I even, and I think back to, and this is something I tell lots of young, youngsters. I saw tragedy and sorrow because I was thinking about myself and I was 
I, I, I got out of control. I forgot who was in charge. Mm. And I believe this was God's way to say, young man, I've helped you to this point in your life. I will continue to take care of you, but you need to remember where does it come from? <laughs> That's right. And so you, and you, it just knocked me down a couple of pegs, but saved my life. Wow. I just not, I, I, I know I'm a walking story for people to understand. Tragedies occur. There are the, there is the human condition. They do. You don't look and blame God. Oh my God. God, how could you do this to me? You know, he's already setting you up for that next adventure. All you have to do is get out there and keep doing stuff. I didn't sit around and say, oh, what was me? Oh, what am I going to do now? I went to work. I took a job, a job. You know, remember, I had a lot of money. I could have just retired. I took a job um, helping a meat manufacturer sell his product by trying to create recipes. And during that, I met a guy from Grand Casino. And that guy from Grand Casino saw the talent and he said to me, hey, chef, how would you like to kind of help us at Grand Casino? And that's where I met Lyle Berman. And Lyle instantly knew once I started working on food for them, wow, we found the right guy. And I would have never had the chance to do the rainforest because that all came through the Grand Casino adventure. And so, and I would look at rainforest as probably, even though that was, I, it was not my idea at all. It was Steve Shushler. It was just an incredible genius in concepts, but he didn't have to know the wherewithal to do the food. To be part of that and, and just this incredible experience, you have to know, you have to know there is a bigger, bigger force taking care of things for you. Isn't that so the I, truth? I, and and I love, I love, and I love the picture you painted, Andy, because you can't unwind the good from the bad. You just, I mean, scripture teaches that, but you don't know it till you live it. You you take out the worst things, well, then you may not have the best things. And you may not be able to appreciate the best things. And here you end in the rain, you end up in the rainforest cafe at this point, creating this this food, and and now it's at a, as you said, every Disney park, the only restaurant at every Disney park across the world. What made it? What made Rainforest Cafe so unique that Disney said, "This is our deal. We want this." Tell me a little of that story. Well, it was because when we did it, um, of course, it was fully immersive. You got this whole environment around you. We were the first restaurant in the country to have live animals. I mean, we mm. had birds. Uh, we had to have a sanctuary in the back for the birds. Uh, and so you could come and actually meet and talk to the, uh, because we had a curator in each place that took care of the animals, both the birds and the fish. And so, but we also had great food. When we opened, we had such great comments on the food that people came back. So they would come back. You know, there's a difference between a must-see and a must-experience restaurant. Mm -hmm. That's the big difference. So when you must see it, or after you've seen it, what do you do? Okay, then you don't need to see it again. But experience it. In the rainforest, you could come five times and have a different experience depending on where you sat in the restaurant. And so I think that's what it was. It was kind of bringing video games to life. Mm. You could walk through there and not just be sitting in front of a screen. 
And I think that was, and of course, none of us knew what we were doing. We, we were having fun. We were enjoying ourselves. We were trying to create this thing. None of us, had, and if anyone tells you that they had an idea that it would be that successful, they're not being quite honest with you. <laughs> so many things. But again, through guidance and, you know, the Lord looking out for us, we, we created something fantastic. And it was so quick. I mean, I don't think we were open three weeks before the people from Disney were there. Wow. Wow. It wasn't a mall of America, so it had a lot of visibility. Right. That is incredible. And so here you are in the middle of this incredible career, and your faith is is really beginning to grow. It's so funny. You're the second gentleman who said that their daughter was very catalytic in their faith, that in, in around the same age, actually. And you begin to grow in your faith, and and you've got this wild entrepreneurial spirit on top of great skills in the kitchen and great leadership skills. Now you're doing today um, the Cookery and Food Institute. Tell me about this newest part of your journey and where you see these next few years going business-wise for you. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do, again, through uh, some of the experiences that I got by going to church and and learning what a church community is for, and your role in being part of it. Uh, I wanted to share more of uh, my skill with a bigger base. And I couldn't do that at just one brand. So I start, and on top of that, we were, we were getting into learning more and more about our environment, you know, and how, um, you know, in the Bible, it says he gives us all these things, but to be good stewards of it. Mm-hmm. So when he gives us the animals to eat and the fish of the sea, he didn't say, eat as much as you can, as fast as you can. Mm. It's not what it says in the Bible. And so uh, if you read it truly carefully and read it to understand, and I've, I've probably have read it 50 times now and still learn something new every time I read mm-hmm. it, uh, you, I started to learn about taking care of the environment. And I don't mean being an environmentalist, meaning, oh, don't cut that tree down. And don't. That's not what I mean. But I mean, it's understanding that there are things that are good for us and there are things that are not so good for us. And in the food service business, we now know that working in a commercial kitchen that have hoods and grease and all that stuff, tends, you have a 30% higher chance of getting cancer. Wow. So I felt that it was very important for me to get in there and share with folks. And I started expanding on my green cooking platform. So there's no hoods, no grease. And all the things that I, even I do have deep fryers, but they're self-contained so the grease doesn't get in the air and into the plugs, which is where fires start. And now I can do that person. So I developed a test kitchen where people could come in and see and taste. And uh, we, so we, now we do everything from healthcare, which is very important because imagine a kitchen that can't have a fire and how important that is. Yeah. Uh, to hotels, to freestanding restaurants. I just finished designing a casino in Seattle that's going to have a huge food platform, 100% green. And so, which means it's, we're really learning how to um, do the things the way it's taught to us in the Bible. In Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, we opened a restaurant called Hook and Barrel. I provided the consultancy, designed the facility for them, helped create most of the menu. But it's a hundred percent sustainable seafood, so that what wow. we take, we either put back 
what we take, only that what is uh, able to be sustained in life. There's no mass net fishing. We don't do any, even our things like shrimp. We want them to be naturally caught and harvested shrimp, not mass. And so we're, and by the way, and can still make pretty good money doing it. Green does not have to mean you don't make money. And that's so, you know, it's kind of interesting because in the business world, once you put everything aside and all the marketing conversations and all that, it is still boils down to making money. Businesses, the purpose of any business is to provide a profit for someone or something. And so you can't ignore that. But it doesn't mean it has to come at any cost. It doesn't mean you have to sell your soul to get it. If you do your homework and you be and you're honest about it, I think you find that, you know, you can get both of those things. One of the things I teach or I was teaching the Sunday school kids, as I, I asked them, why do they think Christopher Columbus never set foot on the soil of what we know today as the United States? Why might that be? Is it possible that his motive for all this travel and stuff wasn't as pure as some people lead it to believe, and that God knew that? And I firmly believe that the United States of America was chosen by Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is, is if you read the Bible and you read the book of Revelation, for him to return, certain things have to happen with Israel. And I would ask anybody today, if there was no United States of America, would there be an Israel? And I think if you study history well, you would find the answer is no, there's not. There would not be. So that means that prophecy could never be fulfilled. And I believe that that was well started. And if you and then I, one of the, the courses, it's a 26-week course, I teach them how I prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, Christ chose America. Wow. When you That's thought, awesome. It That's is awesome. because when you think about all the coincidences in American history and how, how did it happen? I mean, George Washington was in a battle at the Battle of the Mangahela where 1,400 uh, British soldiers and American, um, they were the, you know, they weren't in the army, they were uh, the militia. There were 14 officers, and including General Braddock, which was England's main officer at the time. Do you know that 13 of them were killed that day? George Washington had three horses shot out from underneath him. At the end of the night, he took his coat off. He had three bullet holes in his coat but not a scratch. Accident? Coincidence? Perhaps not. Look what he went on to do. And if you'll remember, it was he who put his hand on the Bible and said, so help me God, which was not in the written script. So there is, and I can go on <laughs> for hours, and that's what I do over the 26 weeks. I take them through history and all the things that happened and said, could all of this be a coincidence? Could we just be that lucky to be to have the country that we have, and I think the I think anyone who sits and looks at it logically will have to come to the conclusion we had a lot of help, a lot of help. I love that. I love that. What 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 would you say to other leaders about the role of faith in their journey? Well, first of all, is to not hide it. I would say to you that you know you you in an environment where you know it's not being uh, received well. It's what Christ said when he sent them out. And if you're greeted uh, and you're not welcomed, move on to the next town or the next home. 
And I think that you, that's what you do. You don't stop talking about your faith. You don't also don't walk into the room and, and put it out front first. It is a business. But to let folks know that, you know what, these are the things that guide you. These are the principles that you want to live with. And you, you do understand the balance between making a profit and those things. But it doesn't have to, your faith does not have to come at the expense of profit. In fact, follow, it'll actually enhance the profitability. Because you get more people believing and following the truth of what your products are, how good they could really help make somebody's lives better. And they're not selling from a selling sheet. They're selling from inside their soul. Completely different. I love that. When life is said and done, what do you want those who know you best to remember about you? That I was a very, very good teacher and sharer. That I shared my, the benefits that I've got. My, my own girls have said to me, Dad, when I get older, I want to be like you because you give so much. Because what I give mostly is my time. I give my time, I, whether it's uh, doing the home in a week, where I mean, I literally, I cook three meals a day with my wife. Uh, she comes with me. Uh, uh, even my younger daughter, she's been her three uh, spring breaks all three spring breaks in high school, she came down and was part of the team as well. Um, and I, so I would say that you don't let, um, don't keep your faith in the closet. Let people know that it's what guided you in tough times and that it's not only important in tough times, but it's actually also really wonderful in good times. I hope you enjoyed my time with Andy. Good grief. You know what I love, what, probably one of my biggest takeaways from our time together was how he came to know Christ. Amazing story. The amazing story of influence. The amazing story of watching God work when you really least expect him to work and watching how he can change someone. And I love that now as he is in this, this stage of his career that he's looking at life completely differently. And he's looking at things completely differently. Andy Ravella was a blessing. And Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Well, our next guest couldn't be more opposite in an opposite industry. His name is Pat DeMarco. He's a fullback with the NFL Buffalo Bills. I got to know Pat while he was here in Atlanta playing for the Falcons, and he is one of the good guys that's out there. And you are going to love my time with Pat next week. Well, once again, thanks for joining in. Thanks for tuning in to Lynch with the Leader. Please do share it with a friend. Share it on your social media and let others know. Uh, if you get a chance, go online, leave a review. That helps us help find more people who are trying to be the leaders that God created them to be. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, go be the leader that God created you to be. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.